0: Good morning, I'm Rick Ayers, one of your elders, and thank you for allowing, I guess you didn't have a choice, but thanks for, uh, for allowing me to be up here during our time of pastor transition um, as uh, we search for a new full-time teaching pastor. Today I want to go through, uh, we, we went through all of Isaiah last week, um, the first uh, 39 books, and we went through some history of the prophets and those kind of things. But today I want to go through specifically Isaiah 53. I asked you last week um, to read Isaiah 53. How many of you did that? Can you bring the lights up in the... There we go, just a little bit. Wayne and then, and then Wendy. And... I'm just kidding. I have a special gift for you guys. So um, anyway, thanks for doing that. As we go to Isaiah 53, actually we start in Isaiah 52. And if you bear with me, I just want to read this through so we know where we're at. If you guys want to open your Bibles to Isaiah 53, it's page 818 in my Bible. Isaiah 52, you want to put the slide up, Devin? There we go. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human and his form marred beyond human likeness. Verse 15, so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him for what they were not told they will see and what they have not heard they will understand. Starting in chapter 53, next slide, He he grew up like a tender shoot and like a root out of the ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from the people who hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Verse 4, surely he took up our pain and bore out our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Verse 6, we are all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Next. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. Verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor any deceit with his mouth. Yet it was with the Lord, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord make his life like an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Um, After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear the iniquities. Verse 12. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils of the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Is that it? 12. Yes. Nope. Yep. Thank you. Sorry. It's early. I've only had nine cups of coffee. All right. So, Isaiah 53. This is the chapter and verses in Scripture that convinced me once and for all that the Lord was real, that God was real. 30 years ago. Um, Read the New Testament. Uh, read all this stuff and then I started reading about boy if this Bible stuff is true there must be something here and then you find out the Dead Sea Scrolls from Qumran where the shepherd boy found the scrolls and Isaiah is what they found and what they found almost completely they had 17 grammatical errors to what we know today in scripture so to me that was very convincing And then I stumbled across Isaiah 53, and I thought, here's a man who 700 years before Christ prophesied his death. And for me, that was very convincing that not only was God real um, and the prophet Isaiah was real, but that scripture was what it said it was. So it was really important to me. Everything is in this chapter. It's the incarnation of Christ to the final reality of Christ. His arrival, His life, His rejection, His trial, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, His intercession, and His ultimate glory. It's all in one chapter. For me, it was incomparable evidence of the divine authorship of the God of the Bible. See, it's a microcosm of the Bible. We talked a little bit about it last week. It It starts with our Lord's eternal relationship with the Father. It descends all the way down into Christ's humiliation, his incarnation, his rejection, and finally his execution. Then it goes back up through the empty tomb on Easter and the justification for many, including us. Then his intercession and his glory and his final kingdom. It's all in chapter 53. No wonder Isaiah, especially chapter 53, is quoted in 15 of the 27 books of the New Testament. It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's in the Acts, it's in Romans, it's in 1 and 2 Corinthians, it's in Galatians, Ephesians, Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, 1 Peter, and 1 John. The apostles knew their Bible, didn't they? Fifteen books of the 27 in the Old Testament. So the question we have, and I always had here um, early in my walk, and even really today, we ask, why do the Jews reject Christ? Do you agree with me that this pretty much depicts who Jesus was? And you read it and you say, I, I, I can't believe it. Well, the next slide says, Because their religious system is set up so that they go about to establish their own righteousness. Paul says in Romans, Since they, the Jews, did not know the righteousness that comes from God, they thought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes understand there's two religions in the world of course there's more than that but biblically there's two religions the religion of human achievement and the religion of divine accomplishment either you do it for yourself or God does it for you and you do nothing to earn it Lexi just sang beautifully and boy is that pregnant woman can sing right is that awesome or what She just sang about amazing grace. You can sing before you're pregnant, by the way. Um, It's either grace or works theology. See, there's a difference between the New Testament Jews and true Christians. In the Jewish faith, they don't think they need a Savior. We do, don't we? And we know we do. We understand it. They wanted a deliverer, mostly from the Romans. They wanted a warrior to reestablish their land. Isaiah answers that question of why they rejected in the 53rd chapter. I really want you to understand this. This chapter deals with the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the life of Christ, the rejection of Christ, the humiliation, the death, the resurrection, the intercession, and the glory of Christ. It's primarily not a prophecy about Christ. You guys are thinking, what is he saying? This chapter is a promise of the future salvation of Israel. It is also promised in Ezekiel 36, verse 24. It's promised in Jeremiah 31. It's promised in Romans eleven twenty-five through 27, where it says, so all of Israel will be saved. What you have here is an amazing part of Scripture that gives us the statement that the Jews will make in the future. All of Isaiah 53, when they look on the one, Jesus Christ, that they've pierced, and they finally get it right. It's a stunning portion of Scripture. But how did they miss it? See, it's many times, uh, I don't know if Tim Nugent's here, but he's. we talked about this last week during coffee. He's a detective, or whatever he is for the DOD. I just know I'm paying his salary. So um, <laughs> I'll make sure he knows that. But, but you look at a person, when, when you're investigating someone, And you you look at a person and you say, okay, this person's guilty and all the facts have to fit that this person's guilty. That's dangerous, right? Instead of gathering the facts and letting it take you where the truth is. Well, the Jews had decided that this was about them. This was about their suffering. They already decided and then they pulled all the facts in. And many times I'll sit there and talk to a Jewish Brother or sister and, and, and explain this and they'll say, No, I know it looks like it, but we just don't believe that way. Folks, we do that in ourselves in our own Christian life. We need to be very careful to follow the scripture, follow the author's intent, not our own. We can make scriptures say pretty much whatever we want, right? You ever see anybody take a scripture out of context? Never. Right? Never we do to justify our own lifestyle many times. And we we have to stop doing that. This is what the Jews did. They were looking for a conqueror. Well, Jesus didn't come from an elite people. He didn't come from royalty. He had no education. He was unimpressive. His family was unimpressive. His town was unimpressive. What good comes from Nazareth? His background was unimpressive. His origin was contemptible. They could not process the fact that the messiah god in human flesh the great king long awaited would come that way born in a manger in a stable attended by shepherds who were the bottom rung of the social ladder very unimpressive and despicable and then they said you know when he grew up he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him nothing about him was royal nothing about him was regal He had no persona. He had no presence. And then his end was really contemptible. If you look in your Bibles on chapter 53, verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men. You know who those men were? The leaders of the Sanhedrin because they did not want to give up their power. They despised him. They despised his origin. They despised his presence. They despised him in the end. They called him a man of sorrows. Nobody gave him honor. And nobody gave him respect. He had no one powerful in his life that mattered. He hung with a bunch of ragtag nobodies from Galilee, seven of whom were fishermen. Talk about the bottom of the barrel. Not for you fishermen, I'm sorry. The rest were uneducated Galileans. And the only non-Galilean in the group, guess? Judas Iscariot. Jesus was the kind of person you turned your face away from. That's why they rejected him. Let me tell you this, it got ugly from there. We all know the Hebrew word for Jesus, right? Yeshua. Yeshua. The Jews shortened it to Yeshu. Yeshu means let his name be blotted out or obliterated forever. They just did not want anything to do with this man. Verse 4 says, Um, is that basically the doctrine of atonement, 53, 4, says, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. This is about being the scapegoat that I talked to you about a few weeks ago in Leviticus 16. He picked up all our sins, he loaded them on himself and hauled them away as far as the east is from the west. First Peter says, he bore his own body for our sins. That's called atonement. Then you have his sacrifice. He was pierced through and crushed for our sins. In other words, to satisfy God. God needed a sacrifice. That's what propitiation means. He was a sacrificial satisfaction to God. He paid the penalty for our sins. See, this is the true doctrine of salvation. He doesn't die a moral influence, does he? And he doesn't die a martyr. A martyr dies singing praises to God whether they be lit on fire or pierced through Christ died as a substitute for all of us and verse 7 is crazy how does he know how does Isaiah know he'll go silently how does he know he won't defend himself innocent sufferers scream about their innocence don't they some of you are reading the book of Job I talked to you this last week Job doesn't go quietly Job says why why me why are you doing this Guilty sufferers cry out for forgiveness and mercy. Read the Psalms, especially 32 and 51. See, the Jews came along and decided this chapter was about them. They didn't want it to be about the Messiah, so they made it about them. The first question you ask is, since when have the Jews been a silent sufferer? Right? 800 years before this, the Jews are just quietly walking along for 40 years in the desert right why why me why did you take us out of egypt why did you do this where's our food sounds like a lot of us why so the messiah will come he will be god in human flesh he will be high higher and highest just like the seraph said in isaiah 6 he will be rejected because of his such because of his humble beginnings his unimpressive appearance and his horrific ending. They will reject him through history until the day the spirit of grace is opened by God himself and the light comes on to the Jews. And they'll look on the one they pierced and they mourn for him. And the flood of cleansing is open to the Jews because they will look back on the cross and they will see it for what it was. It was their opportunity and it will be their opportunity again according to scripture. In verse nine, we now get past his death. His grave was assigned with wicked men. What does that mean? Well, on Golgotha, when he was between two thieves, when those thieves got killed, they pushed him over into the valley of Hinnom, where Gehenna comes from, and Jesus was going to have that same fate. It was the city dump, and fires burned there continually because of the methane. Jesus uses a metaphor for hell, where the fire never went out. So his grave was assigned with wicked men, it says, because he died between two thieves. But something strange happened. Scripture says he was with a rich man until his death, or in his death. Joseph of Arimathea, who came and asked for his body and put him in his brand new family tomb, never used before. 700 years before this, Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, is prophesied by Isaiah, before he ever showed up and God decided to use that little detail here why did God do that why did it matter because in Psalm 16 he said he would never allow his holy one to see corruption and that was the first step back up small step but God would not allow his body to be desecrated so the father works providentially through Joseph of Arimathea and his body is taken and put in a new tomb and we know the rest of the story Who would sacrifice Christ? Who killed him? In chapter 53, verse 10, he gives us the answer. The Lord will crush him. Ever thought about God killed Jesus? The Lord will crush him, putting him to grief, since he would render himself as a guilt offering. Did the Romans kill Jesus? Not really. They were intermediate agents. Did the Jews kill Jesus? Not really. Although growing up a Lutheran, that's what I was taught. Right? Some of you are with me. <laughs> and as Christians, we say our sin killed Jesus. Actually, in a court of law, the evidence goes right back to God. God struck him down. He was God's lamb. John the Baptist says in John one twenty nine, Behold, the Lamb of God... This was God. Every family picked out a perfect lamb to sacrifice. This was God's lamb. The smiter was God, and he did it so that it could be a guilt offering and a trespass offering. But there's hope. In verse 10b, he will long, prolong his days. That's a euphemism for him living to- forever. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. What's the good pleasure of the Lord? The whole purpose of redemptive history, according to Isaiah, is for the father to gather a bride for his son. Who's the bride? It's the church. It's us. In this case, it was the Jewish nation. Isaiah was talking to the Jews. The church. What if the whole purpose of redemptive history is for the father to gather gather a bride for his son? Why would the father want to gather a bride for his son? Because he loves him with an infinite and eternal and agape perfect love, and salvation is to bring glory to a redeemed humanity, which is us, to demonstrate the Father's love to the Son. See, in a sense, folks, we're not the goal of salvation. We are simply the means. He's saving us to create this massive, redeemed humanity who can praise and glorify His Son forever and ever. The only way God can do that is through the death of His Son. Therefore, substitutional sacrifice. So Isaiah says Jesus will die. He will rise. After suffering and as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. God will be satisfied. Christ will be satisfied at the end of redemption history. When all the redeemed are gathered around him forever and ever, he will be satisfied. That's the confession that the Jews will make, which is Isaiah 53. Jesus didn't die under grace. He died under the full fury of the law taken to its maximum, incomprehensible level under the full fury of the law. Jesus died tasting hell. He did it so that he could bring us to glory and share everything with us that he had. Many of you saw The Passion of Christ back in 2004, the Mel Gibson movie that made so much money, and it was very difficult for me to watch. Uh, I'm sure most of you, too, Um, because it was so brutal. And I often thought, not so much what happened to the Christ figure, but how do you get to a place where those Roman soldiers could beat someone like that? Or how do you get some place where, if you're a Jewish leader, you could watch someone be beaten like that and be somewhat responsible? Well, we don't understand the whys. We understand, we we ask many questions in our own life. God, why does this happen? Why did that happen? Why are you doing this? And and we look back 700 years before Christ, and and they, they looked at it, and they didn't really understand it, but it wasn't theirs to understand. It was for the New Testament Christians. When I say New Testament Christians, New Testament Jewish leaders, it was for the Sanhedrin. They knew exactly what Isaiah 53 said, and they had a choice and they made the wrong one. To date, they have still made the wrong one. But Scripture's clear that they will say this towards the end. As uh, Aaron read on Isaiah 55, go ahead and go to the next slide. This is one of my favorite Scriptures when when people say, why does God do certain things? Folks, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. Everybody understand that? Well, my God doesn't do that. I don't like my God doing that. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Hey, guys, let's not overthink this. Verse 11 of chapter 53 says My word goes out of my mouth, God, my word. It will not return to me empty, it will accomplish what I, God, desire. And achieve the purpose for which I sent it. This is not a democracy. We don't get a vote. Everybody understand that? If I leave you with nothing more today, we don't get a vote. You can plea, you can argue, you can pray, you can try, but you know what? He's in charge. He is in charge. Choo-choo. See, God's in charge, not us. He does not need to explain himself to us, his creation. We need to do two things. Love him and love his people, including Steve. Commandment one and commandment two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. And love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible's real. It is the true account of God's word for us dating back some 5,000 years. Isaiah is the proof that explains that God is real and who he says he is. 700 years before Christ. Think about that. Three times as long as America's been in existence and about the same age as Mike Gassaway. Where's Michael? Michael, how you doing, buddy? That's a running joke we have. You look pretty good. Um, Mike and Isaiah went to high school together. 700 years before Christ. (laughs) God used Isaiah. Mike was two years ahead. Um, He used Isaiah to foretell the story of his birth, his death, his resurrection, the glory, and the redemption of the Jewish nation. We need to pray for our Jewish nation. We need to pray for their redemption because it's foretold in Scripture. And we need to pray for the church of we're part of. Just not Foothills Church, but the church as a whole, the church body of who we are. Scripture is full of prophecy, and the New Testament is full of the desires of God's heart for us. We just need to follow and know, love, and serve Him. So before Craig comes up for communion, I'd like you to bow your heads and pray with me. Just a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, and God, we are so thankful for Isaiah. We are so thankful for the words that, that come from your book, your holy book, Lord. The Jews had Isaiah 53. They had prophets. They had Jeremiah. They had Hosea. They had... O- Lord, we have the entire book. As true Christians, Lord, we need to understand and know this entire book so we can follow your ways not our ways. We can follow your thoughts, not our thoughts. Lord, you're the great redeemer. You are the one who's in charge, but Lord, let us not get in the way of your plan, but just get on our knees and pray to you of what you want us to do. do. Again, Lord, it says in Isaiah 6, You asked, who should you send? And we're just saying as Foothills Church, send me, send us. Send us into the neighborhoods. Send us into the schools. All you teachers that are believers, be a mirror, be a light. All you people that are out there in the community, be a light in darkness. Tell tell about your faith. Lord, that's what you want from us, to know, love, and serve you, and to love our neighbors as ourselves, Lord. So as we come up before communion, Craig's gonna just give us the words of of who you were, your body and blood broken and shed for us, Lord. We just wanna be open to that and just understand exactly what happened on the cross and what you did for us. And all's people said, amen.